All right, so we're going to dig into Romans 12 today, and this is really important because so far this series has been very heady and heavy, and we've been trying to figure out what Paul's talking about. Paul's very confusing. Did you know that even the Bible knows Paul is confusing? Like Peter, in one of his letters, is like, I know y'all have been trying to read Paul's letters, and my heart goes out to you because that dude, <laughs> he's like, even though it's, he does call Paul's writings scripture, which is interesting in the first century, a writer in the Bible calls another writer writings scripture, um, but he says, I understand they're hard, to, they're hard to grasp sometimes. And the first 11 chapters of Romans, very hard to grasp, very heady. It's like talking about sin and grace and forgiveness and shame and the law and the Jews and the Gentiles, like all of it. And today, though, we pivot. Today gets very practical. Romans 12, extremely practical. All we're talking about today is how should Christians live? How should our lives look any different than anybody else's lives? And if they don't look any different, then what's the point of Christianity? I think one of the issues we face is that because we say it's all about grace and God loves you like you are, like what's the point of being good? Being good is hard. And it, it's more fun to be bad. So why not just be bad if it's all about grace? Who cares, right? And so um, I, I don't know this for sure. I, I don't have any data to point to here, but I would guess that a top three reason that people choose to become agnostic or atheist if they have some experience with Christianity is because of Christians behaving badly. Christians who kind of um, have a superficiality about us we think, uh, yeah, I'm good on the surface. I say the right thing. I go to the right place or I abstain from the right things. But deep down, you're just as corrupt as anybody else. And eventually that corruption just comes to the surface. And when people see that, they see through this religion you've been claiming as true. And, uh, and they think it's false. And so how should we be living? Sometimes it's very hard. If it doesn't come from a root, from a, from a source like God... If we try to just fake it till we make it, sometimes we don't make it. So this uh, clip I'm going to show you it illustrates this perfectly. It's from a Christian comedian named John Christ, and uh, he's one of my favorites, and he says this way better than I do about the struggle being so real for Christians, even at church on a Sunday morning in the parking lot. See, I'll check this out. Jesus, I am late for church. I'm just going to speak this parking spot into existence right now. Just name it and claim it, Jesus. Oh, for heaven's sakes, use the crosswalk. I, okay, I have the fruit of the Spirit, but y'all need to move. Ooh, she is going to wear that into Bounce your eyes. Bounce your eyes. Jesus, give me a miracle. I need a ram in the thicket. I love this church. It's just like, come as you are. You know what I'm saying? How do I look, though? Does this jacket go with this shirt? Oh, good Lord. Guests, single parents expected mother who doesn't have a parking spot these days i have been here 27 years i deserve respect oh yeah go ahead take my parking spot she listen she probably needs jesus more than me honestly use your mirror how long does it take to back out of a <laughs> jesus give me strength this is so str honestly there better be coffee there better be coffee y'all are gonna make me park in a handicap spot oh look there go the homeschoolers i swear if somebody took the last jelly donut i will don't make me get out of the oh move hey, are that you on the ministry team not today okay oh you're gonna drive a lexus okay i know where your treasure's at not in heaven the sermon series is what putting others in front of yourself oh this doesn't apply to me 
I mean, for heaven's sakes, move out of the road. Look at this truck. Where are you going? A church or a Trump rally? Finally found a parking spot 15 minutes late. Oh, it is way too cold out here, but you better bring a shuttle or I will watch this service online. <laughs> oh, it's so good. There's, <laughs> if this preaching thing ever falls through for me, I'm gonna do what that guy's doing. I like, I like making fun of people and uh, I'll just let him do it today. Uh, <laughs> what is that truck? Are you going to a church or a Trump rally? I like that one. Uh, <laughs> and there's the homeschoolers. <laughs> In the van. Anyway, anyway, I'm going I'm to move on. Uh, the question is, uh, should our lives look any different? Should we, when we decide to follow Jesus, I understand not everybody here has made that decision yet, and that's fine. I'm glad you're here anyway. But if you've decided to follow Jesus, should your life start to look different? So if you have your study guide, you can take that out and uh, follow along. And we're going to read Romans 12 in three sections today. The first section I'm going to read is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And all of it's going to be in your study guide. Or, obviously, in your Bible, if you're a good Christian and you brought your Bible to church today. Or on your Bible app, if you have that as well. I'll tell you this. If you don't have a Bible to speak of, like, at all, like, let us give you one with, like, no strings attached. On your way out, it's in the Connect table. Just grab it. It's our favorite thing when people take those Bibles. Um, so take one home with you today. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right. First thing you ought to see about this passage is that phrase, living sacrifices. For us, if you've been around the church like I have my whole life, you kind of just skim past that, and you shouldn't because it's meant to shock. That phrase, living sacrifice, is meant, meant to shock. You're not supposed to skip past it. You're supposed to go, what? Because it's entirely oxymoronic. Anybody that knows anything about ancient worship practices and all of Paul's audience would have known about ancient worship practices. They had lived it. Anybody that knows anything knows that there's no such thing as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice is, by definition, dead. If you bring a goat to worship with you and give it to the priest, and he doesn't kill it, and he just takes it home, it's not a sacrifice. It's a stolen goat. The priest... <laughs> Jacked your goat. That's all that is. And so a sacrifice, in order to be a sacrifice, must be killed. It's got to die. That's how it worked. The thinking here, and this was across many, many religions for many, many years, the thinking was that when you do bad stuff, you rack up a certain debt. And certain bad stuff gets you more debt. Certain bad stuff gets you less debt. And so whatever kind of debt you think you've wrapped up, you bring a... a an animal that is valuable according to whatever debt you've got. So if you stole a pen from the bank, you brought a pigeon. But if you robbed the bank, you bring a cow. You know what I mean? So you kind of judge based on where you, where you stood. And your sacrifice was a, a way of attaining momentary forgiveness. So you had to come back if you sinned again. And, and we've talked about that cycle a lot here at the story, but that's what a sacrifice was. It made you holy for a time until you went out and sinned 
again. And so what Paul is saying here, and he says it very early in the Christian tradition, and it has become a foundational teaching for Christian understanding. If you don't know this, then you've been told something about Christianity that's not right. Like if this doesn't sound familiar to you, then, then you need to understand this is the ground on which we stand. In light of Jesus, no more sacrifices are necessary. There are no more sacrifices necessary because Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And the thinking here was, if a pigeon's blood is enough to cover little sins and a goat's blood is enough to cover medium sins and a cow's blood is enough to cover big sins, how much does Jesus' blood cover? If he is in fact God incarnate, the embodiment of all good things, innocent, pure, Holy, divine, how much is his blood worth? And so if he entered into that system to put an end to it, we, we think what he was trying to say is uh, his blood covers not just some sins and not just for some time, but all sins for all time. There is no debt you can rack up that's weightier or bigger than what his blood is worth. And so it's all already been forgiven. And so there's no more need for that sacrificial kind of worship. And the reason this matters today as much as it, as it did back then is because even though you didn't bring a goat to church with you today, did you? It's in your car. <laughs> did you roll the windows down? Anyway, even though it doesn't matter, it's a sacrifice. So anyway, even though it matters. Come on, animal lovers, stay with me. Even though... You didn't bring a goat to church with you today to sacrifice. We still have that sacrificial system deep in our, in our subconscious. Like We still think, i got to go to church to pay something off. That's why people say, I haven't been to church in a while. You know, I, really need to, I really need to get there. Like There's shame in that, right? Because there's still the sacrificial system deep down. Some of us treat offering time like a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. You don't need to, to give an offering to atone for your sins. That's over. All your sins have already been atoned for. Whatever you give is in response to that atonement, right? So you're not earning anything by way of that. And so the question then became for Paul's audience and people, the early Christians were like, wait, wait. For all of our lives and our parents' lives and our grandparents' lives, regardless if they were pagans or Jews, all of them believed that basically what worship was was bringing some poor animal as a sacrifice for your sins. And so if that's over, then what's worship now? What do we gather and do? There's no animals to kill. Like, how do we spend our time? You know, that kind of thing. And it was a serious question because all that worship had ever been was atoning for your sins. And Paul is answering that unspoken question by saying your true, acceptable, holy worship is not what you have in your hands. Your true, holy, acceptable worship is your very self, your body presented to God as a living sacrifice. Nothing else has to die. Jesus died and that's enough. He brought us all back to life. We are living sacrifices. And the more you live for God, the more slowly the Holy Spirit works on you, transforming you into the image of God you were created to bear in the first place, just kind of uh, uh, shaving away some of the sins that hold you back, freeing you from some of those burdens, and the more deeply in love you fall with God. And when you fall more deeply in love with God, you fall out of love with things that run counter to your love of God. Your appetites change. You start wanting the things that you used to want 
a little less. You start wanting the things of God a little more. And suddenly one day you wake up and realize that your life is your worship. Not your Sunday morning, but your very life is what you have to give to God. And so um, that, I think, is what Paul is trying to say um, when he, when he get, redefines worship for these people. He says, uh, you offer yourself fully uh, in, in worship by not conforming to the pattern of this world and by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love these two verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2, for a long time, was like my life verse. Like it was my, when, I was a, when I was a student, high school student, in the Bible Belt of East Texas, like that's, these are my favorite two verses. First of all, because it was nonconformist, and I'm kind of a nonconformist, and I was like, yeah, don't conform. I didn't, I didn't know what it meant. I just know I didn't like to conform. Like, don't conform. Yeah, stick to the man. And, but, but then I also like the second part, the older that I get, because the second part is where Paul says, be renewed in your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this is important to me, and this may not strike home to you, all of you, but listen, this is important to me, because all I was ever told when I went away from Christianity in my 20s when I decided I was an agnostic or an atheist in my 20s, all I was ever told about Christianity is that it's anti-intellectual. That you can either be a thinking person or a Christian one. You can either be smart or you can be spiritual. But you can't be both. And so if you're an educated academic person and you're an intellectual and you want to call yourself a Christian, you have to walk through those doors and kind of check your brain at the door and then come in and do and say all the weird, crazy stuff Christians do and say, and then you go back out and put your brain back in and go live your real life for another six days. Like, that's what I was taught about Christianity, is that you can't be Christian and intellectual. But Paul clearly says here that being a faithful Christian is all about learning how to think, being better thinkers, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. He doesn't say, don't open your mind, your brains will fall out. Like some Christians will say, he doesn't say, it's all about your heart and not your mind. He says, we're transformed by the renewal of our mind. We're here to learn to think better, which is very important. And I think this is extremely important for our time, because I don't know if you've noticed, but we're living in a time, which is fascinating. This is fascinating to me, because we're living in a post-enlightenment age where we have more information at our disposal, access to more knowledge than any people have ever had before, and no one is using any of that. No one in the church or outside the church seems to be committed to using our minds. We're, we're illogical people. We're not logical. We're not thinking things through. <laughs> as a culture, because we are leading with our feelings. We're leading with our emotions and our hearts. And we're governed not by what's true. We're governed by what offends us. It's an outrage culture. And it makes no sense. And no one's thinking, even the smartest people aren't thinking, y'all. It's just, it seems like a world gone mad sometimes. Uh, the, the way that we think. And, you know, we're here talking about the way a Christian should live his or her life. But, you know, I, if you're a skeptical person, you're not a Christian, or if you know someone who is, like, I would be willing to, like, flip that question around and say, okay, we're here talking about what it means to live as a Christian, but what does it mean from a secularist or a skeptical standpoint to live and to live well? What do you live for? My guess would be if you went to someone who's a strict secularist or a humanist and said, what should I be living for to live a good life? 
they would say to you some variation of, well, you should live for yourself. Right? Like that's a mantra. I'm not like being, I'm not trying to be judgmental or overly critical, but that's a common mantra in our culture. You should live for yourself and know yourself and be true to yourself and love yourself and be yourself and treat yourself and all the things that we say, right? It's so deep in us that even if you don't think you believe that, you probably really do. You believe that you are the center of, of the universe, right? So this uh, Diet Coke ad uh, kind of uh, illustrates this even better than I could, and, and it does it in only 30 seconds. So y'all check out this ad. Look, here's the thing about Diet Coke. It's delicious. It makes me feel good. Life is short. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. If you want to run a marathon, I mean, that sounds super hard, but okay. I mean, just do you, whatever that is. And if you're in the mood for a Diet Coke, have a Diet Coke. Diet Coke, because I can. They packed a lot into that 30 seconds. Is, is anyone ever in the mood for a Diet Coke? Anyone? No, I don't think so either. Diet Coke is just, well, it's just awful, right? But beyond that, the messaging here is uh, problematic. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. No, think it through. Like, yurts don't even have air conditioning. This is Houston. Like, don't. You know what I mean? Like, but this message of you do you, man, it sounds so liberating. It sounds really good. I'm not going to lie. Just you do you. I do me, you do you. We'll do us. Like, it's great until you realize that the you you're supposed to do, I don't know, might not be all that great. What if, what, what if the you you're supposed to do is just as messed up as anybody else? What if you took that commercial and replaced the words Diet Coke with crystal meth? If you want some crystal meth, just have some crystal meth. Would you still just say, just do you? Probably not, right? I hope not. <laughs> but if you're saying that in the first place, I'm not sure how you have authority to say, don't do that. You know what I mean? Uh, if you want it, you should do it. That's the mantra of the culture. Just be yourself. Be true to yourself. Love yourself. But what if yourself is a thief. Do you still be true to yourself? What if you discover one day that yourself is a total perv? What if yourself is a narcissist? Or a Red Sox fan? Should you still be true to yourself? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. The argument falls down on itself, and it doesn't even take that long. And I'm not even that smart. I just broke it down in about 90 seconds. Diet Coke broke it down in 30. Like, it's not even that good of an idea, but that's all we ever say. Just be yourself. Just do you. 
just uh, be true to yourself. It's just, it's just crazy. And this kind of thinking can actually infect the church too. It happens all the time. We're not immune to this. In fact, the church oftentimes just takes the world's bad ideas and stamps Jesus on them and says they're good. That's not how it works either. All right? So a lot of times we'll say things in church, and these are fine things to say. I say these things sometimes, but, but there's got to be caveats. We say things like, God loves you just the way you are. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. And those things are true. Except... <laughs> Only if we're also willing to understand that while God loves you just the way you are, he's also kind of hoping you get it together one day. You know what I mean? And just because there may be nothing you can do to make God love you any less, there might be a few things you can do to make God like you a little less. (laughs) It's so... This Christianity thing shouldn't just be a reiteration of the world's I'm okay, you're okay mentality, just do you. No, that's not how this whole thing works. We're, we're not here to just languish in mediocrity. We're here to go somewhere with the Holy Spirit. He's taking us somewhere. He's doing something in us. He's not leaving us as we are. He's molding us into the image of God we were created to bear in the first place. And so the more you love him, the more you worship him until one day you wake up and realize he is your whole life. The second section of uh, Romans 12. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8 is where we'll stop this one. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has a body with, one, with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different goal, uh, sorry, different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. And prophesying just means speaking for God by God's authority. Right? That's all it means. Prophesying and prophesying in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's, encur- if it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. All right. So Paul says a couple things in the first nine verses of Romans I think are important, or first eight verses. First of all, he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Second, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And I think these two things are intertwined. I think the connection there is that the pattern of this world that we are so often tempted to conform to is thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Like that's the, the most repeated sin in human history is putting ourselves on a little too high of a pedestal, thinking I am the center of my universe and uh, everything else just happens around me. And even if that's not where your head's at today, I think it's probably subconsciously the way you've been raised, especially if you are a baby boomer on down. And the question is, what happens in a generation or, or in a culture where three or four consecutive generations of people have all been told or, or given the impression that they are the center of the universe? Does it make us any happier to be the center of the universe? We were kind of told that it would, but it really hasn't. 
In fact, it's only led to more misery and to more resentment and bitterness in our hearts because we were given all kinds of false expectations about the way the world should work. If you are the center of the universe, then everything else, people and stuff and everything should revolve around you. But when you grow up, you realize that's not how it works. And here's the conflict that happens. If I believe that I am the center of the universe and you believe that you're the center of the universe, then there's no logical way for you to believe that I am the center of the universe. And that's a problem for me. That's an issue because you're not willing to accept my, my conditions here and my priorities that I'm the center of the universe. And so what happens is all kinds of uh, identifying ourselves as victims. So we are victims when the world doesn't play along with our preconceived set of assumptions. Right? So we grow up thinking certain things were the center of existence, and then those expectations aren't met, and it creates in our minds a sense that somebody owes us something. And what's happened, because it's been going on for so long in America, now what we have is a culture of victimhood. And this isn't just Christianity speak here. This is like, this is being studied and written about in honest academic circles right now. We have a culture of victimhood in which everybody is encouraged to identify themselves based on their victimization. Who has victimized them? And you can be victimized by anybody. You can be victimized by your dad, victimized by your mom, victimized by conservatives, victimized by liberals, victimized by the system, victimized by the government, victimized by the courts. You can be victimized by feminists. You can be victimized by the president. Everybody's a victim. Everybody is identified by their victimization. Because they were led to believe the world works a certain way. It didn't live up to their expectations. And now someone is in their debt. And I think what Paul is trying to get at here is that this is the kind of mentality, this self-absorbed mentality that Jesus came to liberate us from. This self-absorption that leads to victimization. In Christ, there are no victims. Jesus wasn't only the final scapegoat. He was the last victim too. Because what does our victimization even look like in light of the God of all creation being made a victim at the hands of broken humans, being made to suffer humiliation, nudity, punishment, whipping, beating, shame, death at the hands of broken humans, the holy and perfect God of all creation. He was the final victim. In Christ, there are no victims. If you follow him, you're no one's victim. And in fact, Paul, who had more of a license to claim victimhood than any of us, Paul, who traveled over 10,000 miles by foot, and was often alone, often in prison, often made fun of, often persecuted, beaten, afraid, cold, on top of everything else, like the only physical description anyone ever made of Paul came to us from like a late first century, early second century source who said that he heard that Paul had chicken legs and a unibrow. Now can you imagine giving your whole life to God, your whole life, you gave it all away. You traveled 10,000 miles on foot to start churches all over the place. Can you imagine what Paul's prayers must have sounded like? Come on, God. Chicken legs and a unibrow. Like, can we do better? Like, 
More than anyone else here, Paul could have claimed victim status, but he did not. Because for Christians, persecution, pain, loss, disappointment, shame, all of it doesn't make you a victim. It gives you an opportunity to proclaim Jesus, to be more like him. It's an opportunity. It's a privilege. When somebody wants to put you down, if you're a Christian, you take the lower place willingly so that others may have the higher place. You become a servant and a slave in Jesus' name because you're no one's victim. You're set free from the pattern of this world of self-absorption and victimization. I think that's what Paul is trying to um, get across to us. Um, and he says that we are called for a higher calling. Uh, the calling question is always interesting. We always get hung up on it. Like, what does it mean to be called by God to live a higher calling? <clears throat> I've seen Christians go to church and only go to church for years and do nothing else but show up on Sundays because God hadn't told them what he called them to do yet. And uh, sometimes I think that's authentic. Other times I think they're just hiding behind that excuse and they're lazy and don't want to do anything else. Um, I think we overcomplicate the question of what it means to be called by God. It's very simple. It's not just preachers. It's not just leaders. There is a formula to know how God has called you to do something. And the formula is this. It's very simple. There's something that needs to be done plus something you can do about it. You know your calling. Congratulations. You've been called by God. Listen, it's that one thing you always drive past or walk past or come across online and you think to yourself or you complain to your spouse, somebody really ought to do something about that. And God's up in heaven going, yeah, somebody, you know, like looking at you, you know, because he's given you gift to do something about the stuff. You're just avoiding it for some reason. It's easier to say God hadn't called you. Just because you haven't had some kind of a domestic road, a Damascus Road experience, you know, where it's no doubter. Like, there's something that's got to be done. You got something you can do? Do it. You're called. Everybody here understands what calling is now. Uh, this last section of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. And then he says, hate what is evil. Cling to what's good, be devoted to one another in love, honor each other above yourselves, never lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do not curse them back. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, Christians, Christians on social media, if it is possible, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is not a physical punishment. It's meant to speak to the shame that you give someone in their sin. So don't go heaping burning coals on anybody's head and say your preacher told you to do it. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right. Here, Paul surprises because he says the Christian life should be marked by two things. He says in this final section, the Christian life should be marked by love, how we love. And that's obvious. Everybody's like, yeah, Christians should love. But then he also indicates that the Christian life should be marked by how and what 
we hate. This is crazy. I can't, I'm, I'm glad that he says this because there's a lot of stuff that I hate, and I don't want to stop hating stuff. Because it, 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 to me, just to say love and don't hate would harken back to that cultural kind of leading with your heart kind of a thing where it's all about your feelings. And to me, love is not a feeling. It's a choice, right? And love is not mutually exclusive from hate. In fact, if you love something or someone really deep, you're bound to hate something too because, like, I love my wife more than anyone in this world. I love her so much, but my love for her causes me to hate the parts of me that hold me back from loving her even better than I could. I hate the parts of me that are resentful, that are bitter, that are insecure, and I want the Holy Spirit to keep peeling those layers back, right? So love and hate are not mutually exclusive. The question isn't whether you hate. The question is what you hate and why, and what your hate does to you. So there's still going to be stuff. If you love God and you fall more deeply in love with God, you're bound to hate some of the things God hates. You can search your own heart. I'm not asking for, we're not going to open the floor and start talking about what all we hate. But I'll be honest, like there's stuff about this world that the more madly I fall in love with God every day, the more I hate some things about this world and the way it works. It just breaks my heart. I know it breaks God's heart, and I hate it. I hate what is evil, as Paul said. I hate the way people in some circles, and sometimes even Christian circles, talk about immigrant people like they're trash. I hate it. Regardless of how those people got here, love the person in front of you. Consider for just a moment that If you were in their unfortunate shoes, having been born somewhere other than the U.S. of A., you'd do the same thing for your kids. At a minimum, love the person in front of you. I hate the way we treat immigrants and refugees sometimes. I'll be honest, like there's other stuff too that will make you even more uncomfortable when I tell you stuff that I hate. But the more I fall in love with God, the more I hate how nonchalant We as a culture have become about something as heinous as abortion. Like these procedures happen all the time, and most of them are birth control related, and nobody cares. And it breaks my heart because these are human being lives, right? They're not clumps of cells. They're human beings, and I hate it. I hate it. It breaks my heart because I know it breaks the heart of God. And maybe what I hate more than anything else is the nonchalance. But the question isn't. What do you hate? The question is why and what it does to you. Because when you consider the things that you hate that may be contrary to the will of God, do you think it's more important that those with whom you disagree on that particular subject or topic, that they know you know they're wrong, that they know you think they're dead wrong, or is it more important to you, it's your heart of hearts, that they know the same Jesus who saved you from your filthy sins. What's more important? You're not going to convince them Jesus is Lord by shaming them, arguing, making some kind of a point. That's not how this works. You bring someone to the light by shining a light in the darkness. Shine the light. That's more important. That the people who you think might be wrong about something, that they love Jesus. That they know he loved them first. Just the same way that Jesus knew there were some things about you he found despicable and hateful. But he still stretched out his arms and died willingly with you on his mind. Regardless of what you hate and why. 
what you think is right and wrong. What should be most important to you as you grow in Christian character is that the whole world, your friends, your enemies, and everyone in between comes to know the love and grace of Jesus, the same love and grace that saved you and me. Let's pray together. Lord, we know you didn't just come to transform our Sunday mornings. You came to transform our very lives. We know, God, that you didn't come to leave us in our victimhood, but you came to make us servants and slaves. You didn't come just to change the way that we love, but you also came to deal with our hate, to show us how to love more, even in spite of the disappointment and pain and hate we often feel. Lord, this world is broken, but if we love you and put you at the center of our lives and shine a light in dark places, others will know the way to find you. Help us to love you more than we love being right. In Jesus' name, amen.